0: hello and welcome to philosophy with will anderson i'm will anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the show starts i ask my guest who they are so who are you i um am Jock's on Frillo. I'm,
1: uh, I'm a mongrel. I'm half Scottish, half Italian, and, uh, and I live in Australia. I'm a cook. It's nice to have uh, you. I'm a cook. <laughs> I'm a father. Um, I'm a time waster. Um, I'm a prankster. Um, I've done a lot of bad shit in my life, um, but I'm still here.
0: So, you know, I'm not, no complaints. You are still here, and it is actually quite remarkable, looking back at how you got to being here, that that you are still here. So let's start with that. Do you sometimes look yourself in the mirror or look at the life that you now have and think, shit, I am very lucky that I got to be where I am now? I, I, I do, and I think, look, I, I, for
1: anyone that reads the book uh, or has read the book, you'll know that there's a lot of... There's a lot of stuff I've done in my life that I'm ashamed of and not proud of. And and I think for a long time, I couldn't look myself in the eye in the mirror. You know, like I just couldn't... I couldn't sort of... Like, you know, I lied to myself and and everyone around me for such a long time when I was a drug addict. And I think... um, you know, not like lying to yourself is, is bad enough without lying to everyone around you, especially those closest to you. And and yeah, so I think there was, a, for a long time, I looked myself in the eye in the mirror and I just couldn't couldn't look at myself. Um, whereas today, um, it's different. I've kind of reconciled uh, my past. I've reconciled all the all the bad stuff I've done and, and there's been a lot of therapy. And um, three marriages later, um, I've not only found happiness, but i've i've kind of i've managed to to reconcile with my with myself do you know what i mean like have that conversation with yourself where actually you're all right with it it's shit but i'm all right with it
0: you know well, because this is the thing, right? You can get away with shit. Like, I mean, or you can, like, you know, leave shit behind. You know, you can run away from shit. You can have a trail of mess left behind you. But that point of being accountable for the mistakes that you've made. And that's why I'm really interested in the fact that you do have this, you know, new life. You're a very successful guy now. You've had successful restaurants. Like, Master Chef's a huge show. Like, you're a household name in this country. You're married to a very beautiful woman. You have a family with her. Why then did you decide you were going to write a book and really get into a whole bunch of the mistakes you'd made on the way to getting there? Like, what what was the impulse to really write about and own those aspects of your past? I, I think i I'd, I'd done so many
1: interviews and stuff all, over the years, so you know, I, TV here and there, all over the place, you know, and and, and running restaurants and 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 being successful restaurants doing very well people interview you and you you know there's an article here a newspaper clip in there or whatever and everyone just nitpicks one little thing here and there and before you know it you've got 10 years of completely out of context articles written about you that that when, when they're in isolation, looks really bad. <laughs> like, it looks, it's like, oh, you know. And, you know, I mean, my mum, God bless her, just has gone through a couple of decades uh, of, of me being written about in the press and, and her sort of just, I'm sure, having her head in her hands. Um, and so now that I, I, I took the job, obviously, doing MasterChef a couple of years ago, and and now the media profile my media profile just started to explode and, and it's obviously everyone wants to know absolutely everything about you and so i was like you know what these little isolated stories it aren't putting anything in context of, of me as a person and my life and who i am today um and so i just thought right now's the time like you know i think i had been asked to do it a few times before and i was like no i'm just not into it and but now it was like more than ever, because the, there are so many little articles and because the incoming press, because this the, the media profile I was raising, I was like, I'm gonna I, I need to do this, I think. Do you know, like I owe it to my kids and the people I love around me to to put my life in some kind of context so as I don't don't look like a complete
0: fucking idiot, you know? And yet at the same time, you're providing people a a big collection of, you know, some of those worst moments of your life. Like it's all there now, in print, in your own words. It's not a collection of other people's thoughts or articles or some journalist who's just written one specific angle. This is you sitting down and deciding, here is my story. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell it, I mean, very honestly, it seems, was there things that I mean, did you have that conversation with yourself? Did you have that conversation, you know, with Lauren? Did you have that conversation with other people going, I'm going to be, you know, this level of honesty? Was there stuff that you did not put in the book? Look, I
1: so the honesty, first of all, I, I've only, if, if anyone's asked me anything about my life, addiction, uh, marriages, anything, I've always told the truth uh, because, like, it'll just come back and bite you anyway, right? So... When it came to the book, I I, as far as I was concerned, I was absolutely one hundred percent just gonna be honest anyway. Um, and then Los and I sort of had a chat about it and and you know, it was it was Laws said to me, you know, the way Loz is, she was just like, You need to do what you feel is right. And I said, Well, I've never been anything other than honest, so we have to be honest. And she goes, It it there's a lot in there that people are gonna Sort of reading go. That's not normal, or that's shocking, or you know. And and you know, maybe I thought about it for a millisecond, but at the end of the day, it is what it is. And I know that my life isn't normal compared to a kid growing up in Australia or a lot of other countries for that matter, even the UK. But um, it is what it is, and and it does put me in context at the end of the day. I think so.
0: You know, it is what it is. Uh- it's incredible. Like, I mean, I I think that, you know, if you can show, you know, an end success story and then show how hard it can have been or how, um, you know, not straight ahead that journey can be. Mm. I think it's a very valuable lesson for, you know, everybody, everybody who's going through a hard time themselves who might not see any light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, this is a story about there being light at the end of many tunnels but you talk about addiction and look I, we probably should for people who haven't read the book who might not know about the addiction stuff like you started experimenting with drugs very early right like growing up in scotland like i mean i guess we all know from train spotting and like the mythology of like the drug culture in scotland that there probably is more access to drugs at an earlier age than we see here even in australia but can you take me back to that time? What it was like? What the availability of drugs was like? When did that first come into your life? Um, yeah, and I just
1: want to say, funnily enough, I kids, I came across something yesterday um, looking at uh, uh, death-related drugs through through you know social misuse, if you like, uh, currently in the UK and Scotland is still at the top of the charts. Uh, it's just horrific so in some ways things haven't changed but in a lot of ways Glasgow is a much better place and safer place than it ever has been but for me um 12 years old we were smoking pot you know behind the bike sheds and stealing fags before that and you know like cigarettes lead to pot pot leads to you know crumbling up a couple of eckies and you know line of speed then a bit of cocaine uh and then before you know it you're you're having a, a little bit of smoky uh, heroin you know and at the end of the day i think it's to put that in context because that sounds unbelievable for for a 12 year old to be anywhere near that and i think you know in in schools in scotland you know they used to sell drugs in ice cream vans right so they used to play kids music in a truck and they deliver the drugs to the front gates of the school and the music attracts the kids and they sell the kids drugs that's what happened and you know that's the story of hundreds of schools across Scotland, but particularly Edinburgh and, and Glasgow were the two I think epicentres back then in the in the 80s and 90s where it was rife. And you know if you if you take the time to Google ice cream wars in, in Glasgow, you'll you you go down a wormhole of unbelievable stories there as well. But certainly your access as a very young kid to Class A's was as easy as going to buy a packet of crisps at a tuck shop, you know? And so for me, it was, you know, it was, it was normal. And that's, I mean, that's what, you know, a lot of of people think bad of you because, you know, you've had a life of drugs or you've been an addict or, or whatever. And, and I don't come from a, a an impoverished family I didn't walk to school with no shoes on in the snow or anything I came from a loving family perfectly middle class I had no reason to take drugs right but but if if you're surrounded by it and your peer group are, are doing it and it just seems to be what you do to fit in or or you know I I don't know I, it just became the norm I think for for a lot of people and in, in ways, I think at school, and I write about it a bit in the book. I, you know, my surname surname's Onfrillo. You know, it's not a typical Scottish surname. You know, <laughs> and I think, you know, I think I was always on the edge of getting bullied anyway be, because of my lunchbox and my surname. So, you know, I wanted to fit in with the boys and and be normal. So, you know, I was definitely one of those kids that that was heavily influenced by by peer group pressure in a way, um, just so I could fit in. Uh, so how old are you when you first smoke heroin? Um, the first very, very first time I would have been about thirteen thirteen, fourteen, the first time, and that was with uh there was a couple of French chefs, um, and they were doing every drug under the sun. Um and, and I was working part time at, at this sort of kind of luxury small hotel. It was in the really Chateau. Um, group as well so it was quite posh you know and these two French chefs had been shipped in to make amazing food in this sort of little hotel and they were living it up, you know? They were out of France. They'd been working in some three-star somewhere in France and and now had been given the freedom. They were making amazing looking food. Um, And and this was my second job in kitchens. By now I'd been working part-time for about a year in kitchens and I was just captivated by these two super cool French guys. And obviously exposure to a lot of drugs at school, but now, you know, being still at school, but working part-time, finishing school at 3.30 in the afternoon, you know, get the bus to work, and then get on a chef's jacket, and then I'm I'm working with these two hyper cool French guys with like floppy hair, and they're talking about getting out on the weekend and going to clubs, and you know, they're out of the back racking up, and you know, it's not hard to number one be, you know, I guess influenced by by just simply being around that, but also kind of emulating their behaviour in a lot of ways because they were super cool. You know, I, at that point, my dad was a barber. You know, I'd been working in my dad's shop on a Saturday and, and the practical joker in me comes from there without question. Um, you know, he, that was a barber shop with they're busting each other's balls all day long, you know? And that's one thing, but the the, the level of sort of passion and, uh, you know, enthusiasm that's in a kitchen during service is a whole different ball game. And then this philosophy that these young guys had back then of work hard play hard meant that they were you know so focused and and all about work while they were in the kitchen but then you know when it came time where they weren't working it was like party to excess as much as they could get as long as they could
0: yeah so i mean this is the thing this is the story right you're a kid in this industry this industry that you are fascinated by these guys who are super cool within this industry and you're like well i just want to be like them totally. despite the fact that you are a child you know <laughs> like i mean you feel like you are a man you're in a man's job you're in a man's world and you're excited about the idea that you can do that did you have any sense that it was a bigger step because here's the thing like as anyone who r- listens to this podcast knows they're is barely a drug on the planet that I haven't tried at some stage. But the one that I always drew the line at was heroin. And the reason that I drew the line at heroin was I just had a look around at all the people who were doing heroin and it just didn't seem to be working out that well for most of them. You know, there was clearly a few people who could do some heroin and still have their life together, but there was a whole bunch of other people who... Just that was it. That was the one that you couldn't. Did you have a sense when it came to heroin that heroin was a bigger step or did it just feel like it's just one of the other drugs, like the guys racking up coke or doing speed or eccies or whatever, like it's just another drug or did it feel like a bigger step?
1: I, it, I think everybody knows it's a bigger step, but I think it was, there was so much of it around that it, that it was not normal, but it, it certainly wasn't – it didn't feel like the end of the earth. Do you know what I mean? And I and I think smoking it was the other thing. That was the, like smoking heroin was, was just like you, you were, you know, smoking a bit of crack or whatever. It was like, whatever. You know, it's just like doing anything else. It didn't really feel like, like when you start carrying works and you're injecting, that felt like a, a move. Do you know what I mean? That felt like a step change. But when you're younger and, and nine times out of 10, your first introduction to it, well, well, at least it was back then. I don't know. I'm not one of the cool kids now, but it was definitely smoking it. That was your, your that that's what opened the door. And um it didn't feel any worse than, than doing cocaine or, or anything else, to be honest. You know, I think it wasn't until, like I say, the step
0: change for me was was when you start injecting. So when did you start injecting it? 16. We don't need to talk about drugs for the whole time. No, that's fine. I no, just I, just don't, I don't. Like, but it, it is a big part of the story, and I just think it's worth, you know, having this conversation first and then no, we can talk I, about other things. No, I
1: like, honestly, I, I don't mind talking about it because there's a lot, and there's a lot of people since the book come out have reached out, and, you know, their husband, their partner, their son, their cousin, their friend, their housemate, whatever, are in the depths of trying to conquer any kind of addiction and, and the, the – um, they've got something out of the book because of it, so I don't mind talking about it at all. Um, I, I just, I, I, think I've forgotten your question now.
0: Ah, <laughs> uh, so we, yeah, I wanted to know about when you went to that step of starting injecting it. Yes, that sixteen. Is, to me, so, that I agree with that. Like that does feel like the biggest step. Now. Yeah. Like you know, once you, once you, like you know, not only are injecting it, but you have your own equipment, like to inject it like that you're carrying it around that is like okay you know what i am into now i am into heroin
1: yeah enough I, but i think it was i know it's good this is going to sound awful and and weird and i'm ashamed of it but it was kind of cool do you know mm. that the, there was there was a kind of coolness around you know having your works and and being like super prepared and and everything being nice do you know what I mean like I like I was proud of of the way I worked in a kitchen I was also proud of the way I kept my shit you know what I mean and and heroin was cool like I you know I know that's bad but it but it was at the time and I definitely knew though going from like smoking smoking it was one thing and and if you read the book and you read about where I did my apprenticeship and it was hard and it was hard people and it was a fairly toxic environment with a lot of bullying and shit going on. And, you know, I write about just, you, you finish work after 18 hours and, and you're doing over a hundred hour weeks. You just want to get out of your face. You, you want to get completely off your chops and forget about the wankers that you've had to deal with all day and all the shit bits about your job and whether is this it for your life? Do you know what I mean? And you just want to switch off as quickly as possible. And, you know, somebody said to me at some point at, at work, like, what the fuck are you doing smoking it? Like, just get it in your veins, lad, you know? And I'm like, yeah, right. You know, and then the first time I did it, I was like, wow, that is a, a much faster way to get there. And that was it, you know, that, that was it. And that led to me becoming ultimately a, a very high-functioning, um, addict that that relied on and I, I thought there's just so many misconceptions about heroin as well it's like you know people think that you have one shot of heroin and all of a sudden you're a fucking addict it's like it, it takes fucking months months of of abusing heroin before you can, before you, you, you get an addiction and that addiction isn't like fags where you just think oh you know I need a, I need a, a quick fag and calm down or whatever it the addiction, um, the withdrawal part of the addiction is that, and it's hurt. It's pain. The withdrawals hurts. It makes you fucking itch. It makes you tetchy. It, it does weird shit to you, like you, like like that. Like i like just putting my head in the headspace makes you think of me. you. Your face changes. There's contortions in your expressions. There is. Um, hand gestures and stuff that go along with being a junkie that, that you can recognise, you know, if you've been there or you've been around it. And, but it's the, with the, the pain and withdrawal that becomes the addiction. And so for me, just to get up in the morning and brush my teeth and switch the alarm off and get out of bed and go to work, I needed to take a shot do you know what i mean and and so my addiction became taking heroin to be normal and to function rather than to be off my chops sitting in a sofa you know you know out my face do you know what i mean and, and there was there's a lot of people like that you'd be surprised that you know i mean i knew a lot of high functioning addicts of heroin and other
0: drugs but um I, I always go back and say is, that. Is it harder to know that you have an addiction? So I, I would, I, I look, I mean, I'm reasonably high functioning in general. Yeah. Like, you know, and so at times in my life when I was drinking too much or I was like smoking too much pot or whatever it is, like, you know, um, my capacity to be able to still go to work and mm. do my job and like, you know, be a productive member of society, probably papered over the idea that, you know, if it was, you know, if I was missing work, if I was, you know, performing badly when I went to work, all those sort of things, you'd start to go, "Oh, this is a problem in my life." Whereas, if you're still managing to go work, you're still managing to be a productive member of society, are you just not noticing the fact that you, you know, I have developed like a heroin addiction?
1: No, I knew, I knew I was an addict, yeah. uh, and and okay. you know, I think the shame of hiding it makes you know that you're an addict because. Mm-hmm. You, you know, and you're telling fibs here and there. You, you know, you're, you're injecting anywhere other than your forearm so as people don't know. You know, and mm-hmm. f- for me, it's one of those things where you, where you absolutely know, but you reconcile in your head f- whatever concocted bullshit story that you mm-hmm. think you'll believe yourself to to make you think that it's all right. You know, and that's exactly what I did. And you know, it wasn't it wasn't long, really before I was in the midst of it and, and had reconciled that it was all right, but at the same time carried this constant guilt and shame of, of being an addict because there was, in, in the drug circles, there was this cool heroin thing about being a junkie, but then by far 90% of the world, there was this, oh, you're a fucking junkie, you're an automatic fucking leper you know what i mean and nobody wants to even look at you let alone be close to you so of course you want to hide that and so then that that becomes this the beginning of that shame and lying and all the rest of the shit that goes along with it which is horrid
0: so that to me i think is a great observation because you see it in people who have addictions who are hiding them or think that they are hiding them sometimes you know sometimes Like, you know, somebody can think they're hiding something very well when everybody else can see it. Did you think that you were effective at hiding it or do you suspect in (laughs) retrospect that there were a whole bunch of people who knew exactly what was going on? I I think there was probably a combination. I think people knew that I was –
1: most people knew that I was a drug addict but they might not necessarily have known I was a junkie, Um, you know, because at the end of the day I I had the – I had the junk habit that was like the baseline get me going through the day. But then, I, you know, we would all go out in the weekend and I'd be hammering pills and Charlie and anything else I could get my hands on. Uh, You know, and then, you know, we used to go out to clubs and, you know, we were bouncing another two or three pills at two in the morning before the club shut at three, knowing that we'd come outside and start hitting the benzos or the tomazopams coming out so we'd be minced afterwards you know just because i mean we loved it and we loved the feeling and it was the way it was you know what i mean so i I think everyone around me knew i was a drug addict of some description but most people i I kept the junk habit kind of hidden like it like i say it was my dirty secret i think
0: you know that i was most shameful about you know so the drugs make you feel good but i mean it's got to be something more than that like you know what what are they unlocking in you when you're going out with your mates on the weekend and taking a bunch of pills and you know whatever like what is it about what those pills unlock in you what feeling they make you feel that was particularly exciting or was it you know the some people it's to just be able to stay up all night you know they like it because of that like some people you know I went through a big period in like my 20s where like you know we were going out like taking ecstasy every weekend and like you know I think there was definitely a sense of like you know just being able to be closer with your friends and you know be more sort of intimate and loving and confessional about your emotions with your friends that was incredibly (laughs) appealing to me about ecstasy you know I mean that was the thing I love about it you know but but what was it for you that drugs were, like, what was the appeal of them? What was it unlocking? I, it was none of those things
1: for me. Yeah. Uh, for me, it was about forgetting about the, the pain and and forgetting about, you know, the, 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 what, I'd, what I was going through, you know, as, as a young lad, you know, struggling with my own emotions, struggling with life, trying to work out if this was it, working 18 hours a day, over 100 hours a week in a kitchen, you know stainless steel benches white tiles you never see daylight you've got no pals really other than the people in the kitchen you know is is this it is that you know because back then you would picked a career and that was fucking it there was no chop change I'm going to do this better this better that it was like that was that was it and I think for me I you know we had such a hard time in the kitchen and and you know my apprenticeship I didn't enjoy you know I enjoyed cooking but I didn't enjoy the atmosphere of of where I was, and a lot of us just used to take drugs because we knew that we would be as far away from that fucking shit in minutes as you could be, you know. And and all of a sudden, you would have a chance just to to f- not have that shit in your head and just be normal and be amongst pals and talk about whatever, you know what I mean? And sure, you know, going out to clubs and taking taking pills and. You know, you loved up, and and I, I and I did love that part about ecstasy. I think you know, I definitely was was part of a generation where ecstasy was huge um, uh, pastime, and and yeah, we all loved that being loved up, and it brought your friendship group closer together. I think, and you know, but for me, it was about getting off my head as quickly as possible and forgetting about all the other shit in my life, you know, and just being able to have a moment's enjoyment. You know what I mean?
0: That sounds bad. Now, I've said that a but... No, no, no. I mean, that's what I'm asking you, though. I'm asking you, the like, what you thought the motivation behind mm. it was. And I think that, that it's hard to understand the choices that people are making if you don't understand the reasons or motivations for why they're making those choices, yeah. right? So you're living this life you are keeping the heroin use secret from people so not only now do you have like a heroin addiction but you also have a keeping something a secret addiction which is a fucking full-time job you know as well is the idea that you have to like not only do this thing but you have to fucking hide it and now you've got this like shame backpack that you're carrying around as well because mm-hmm. like you know you, you have to lie to your friends and family and work colleagues and whatever about you know at least an aspect of your life that you you are you know keeping to yourself so you can't even discuss it with them you know you can't even like get advice is there a point where you think fuck this like I need to really seriously do something about my life is there is, there, is that that moment of I don't know a rock bottom or a revelation where you're just like this is like n- destroying my life I cannot keep going like this I mean, yeah, I mean, there was. I think I, I tried to kick junk a
1: couple of times. Once when, when I moved out of London, down the southwest west of England to Cornwall, and I had a crack at it then. Um, and, you know, but for me, it was like the title of the book's called Last Shot because I, I found myself in a toilet in Heathrow Airport, New Year's Eve, 1999. Uh, on the way to emigrate to Australia, and that really for me was it felt like I was physically taking what I believed to be my last shot of heroin, but it also really honestly felt like my last shot of sorting my shit out and and getting myself together. I was now married. I was emigrating to Australia, which was a much sunnier, uh, much nicer place than 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 the UK that had far more opportunities than I would ever. Get and being in the UK and working in London and and with a new wife and the prospect of maybe having children one day, it, it felt like my last go at it, you know what I mean? And and I think that was the, I couldn't fucking lie anymore, Will. Like I just, that the, the lying about an addiction and anyone who is an addict and might be listening to this or someone whose loved one is an addict, I can't impress on you the, the the shame that you carry and the guilt that you carry, even though it's you that's doing it, even though it's you that's fucking your life up single-handedly, even though it's you that is terrorizing every relationship in your fucking life, you still feel this incredible shame and guilt. And, you know, that was one of the biggest driving forces for me, you know, when I was, I guess, at rock bottom to, to give it up. That and food, which is the other thing I write a lot about in food, but definitely... The shame and the guilt bit, I mean, as you say, you're carrying, you, carry, you do carry it around and it's not something like, you know when you meet people that have got a problem and they're carrying around this fucking burden and they want to tell everyone about it and fucking whatever. It's like, if you're an addict, your burden's a fucking secret and you you kind of, you you line your way out of even, talking about it do you know what i mean and the first two three four five psychologists you go and speak to you're fucking lying to them as well because, <laughs> because you, you don't know any better you know and i think that's the thing it takes it takes a lot for you to break an addiction but it takes a lot for you to start being honest enough with yourself to want
0: to break the addiction is part of it having to leave entirely you talk about the idea of emigrating to australia Mm. um yeah friends of mine who had heroin addictions in their lives have spoken to me about one of the hardest things is like that all their friendship groups were around heroin as well Mm. like you know eventually they had this like you know when they see these people they would do heroin with these people or they would like like was there an element of you had to get out of the uk to have a fresh start
1: just i i think there's a huge part of of that that I talk about generally, which is if you want to crack the back of any kind of addiction, you need to get the fuck out of the situation that you're in and start fresh somewhere else. If you want the best possible chance, that's one of the first things you need to do. Break your friendship group, You know, even if if it's temporarily for 12 months or 24 months, whatever. I mean, I, I know myself, if I'll go out for a drink with pals that are smokers, I'll end up having a fag. I don't fucking smoke cigarettes, but yeah, there I am after a night out and half a bottle of whiskey out the back having a durry. You know what I mean? It's like fuck, come on, mate. You know, and I'm smoking the fact. Going, what am I doing? You know, but it, it just it, it happens. And it, and your social yeah. group is a is a definitely is a big part of that. But also, the other big thing for me about breaking an addiction, particularly a drug addiction, is that there needs to be something more compelling in your life than that. And if that isn't, you're fucked. You need to find that first before you're going to break the back of the addiction. Like, I really believe yeah, that. Yeah, so
0: you've got to ask that question, what do I love more than heroin, right? Is, is there something in my life that I love more than heroin? That and needs so to And so for you, obviously, food, it was a very big part of that question. It, but it had always been involved. Like, I mean, it's not like food was a new thing in your life food had been alongside drugs Mm. for the period of time up until this but what was it about food or your ambitions around food or what was it that you felt like you weren't able to unlock while you were like a drug addict you know with what you wanted to achieve and do with food
1: i just think that that i i didn't feel as if i wasn't achieving much by being a drug addict right in terms of food i i i'd led myself to believe probably that i was just fine um you know i I, it would probably be amazing if i wasn't a drug addict i might be a much better cook who knows um (laughs) probably um but at the end of the day i'd kidded myself on that i was fine you know that 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 you know I had this drug habit and it was but it was all right because I had food and a career and I was career minded career focused I kept getting good jobs I kept being good at the good jobs um, and I kept rising above I was earning great money um, and life was kind of going all right other than the you know the the, the the shameful embarrassing addiction part of my life that I was lying about all the time but I think you know f- having having this, obsession with food right and and this is a this is huge for me and I didn't even think about it until I wrote the book to be honest it, because when you write a book you're forced to really think about everything because it's all there in one in one place i they, like food definitely saved my life if if i hadn't have been like just imagine for a second i hadn't found kitchens and hadn't become a chef i would have been kicking around the streets maybe working in the fishing industry or like i would have had, a job in a factory or whatever, I would have been fucking dead or behind bars. No question. Like no prospects, no travel, no nothing. I, I would have been, I would have just gone full excess until uh, someone jailed me or I died. And that happened to a lot of my mates. But I think for me, finding food meant that I was constantly trying to excel, constantly trying to be better, constantly on this path of learning and constant understanding that kept me just on the edge of, 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 you know, not falling into jail or, you know, or anything else. And whether that was through, you know, taking excessive amounts of drugs or dealing or that friendship group and all the shit that it brings, food always managed to just pop me back on the right side and keep me moving forward rather than, Ended me, you know, and and I can't be thankful enough for that. Like if I hadn't found food,
0: I would be fucked, totally fucked. What was it or what is it? Maybe it was something different to what it is now, but what is it about food? Why why food? I, I, I think food is just this. When I first got a
1: job in a kitchen, I... There's, there's, you've got service, right? Most kitchens, restaurants, hotels, whatever, they do lunch service and they do dinner service, and so you get in a kitchen, you do all this prep, and someone's teaching you how to, you know, like, I, I, it's fucking cool. Well, like, food is fucking cool. Just imagine, yeah, like I'm 12 years old, 13 years old, and a pocha. Comes to the back door with, you know, six brace of pheasants or teal or wood duck or something, and they sell them to the chef. There's a bit of underhanded fucking exchange of cash. And then you've got these beautiful birds. The feathers are just beautiful. Every feather's a piece of art. And then the chef talks about, you know, plucking the feathers off of these, treating the animal with respect and care, you know, and, and then, you know, then you go through this process of you know butchering and prepping it but now you're going to cook it and cook it perfectly i would never seen ingredients like that fucking hell my scottish side of the family were cooking mints and tatties and we were making fucking pasta on the italian side of the family i hadn't seen (laughs) a fucking pheasant or a grouse or a wood teal or fucking any of that and so these beautiful birds getting taught you know how to cook them and then the first time you eat one of them And you're just like, this is something else. It opens up something in your brain that you've never seen before. And food is this, like if you are an alien and someone introduces you to a world of food, it's like standing in the edge of the world and looking down on it and going, holy fucking shit. How will I ever get my head around all of that amazing knowledge and all of that amazing stuff, different cultures, different people, different tastes, flavours, smells, like it's never ending. And I think that's the thing about food is that it's not a journey that you ever stop taking or learning from or, you know, I'm over 30 years in professional kitchens and I still see shit every day that blows me away and that I am so enthusiastic to just like, go in and start obsessing over. You know what I mean? Um, it, it's an amazing thing, food. And I think maybe that's why. That's why food was the thing for me that that was more compelling than drugs at the end of the day.
0: Okay, so I'm, I'm super interested in, like, you know, your life in general. But I ask people on this podcast if they have a life philosophy of any kind. You know, it can be big, little, profound, not so profound. You know, it does, you can interpret that however you would like, but it is the central conceit of the uh, podcast. So do you have a life ph- philosophy of any kind?
1: Um, I've got a couple of things that, that, um, or, or a couple of... I don't know if it's a philosophy or it's a... It started out being a saying but then became one of my life sort of philosophies. One of them is... Came from my nono and who always used to say there's no such thing as perfection. And, you know, because I, I can remember saying something was perfect. I was building fucking Lego or some shit. And I was like, no, nah, it's perfect. And I, I remember getting told there's no such thing as fucking perfection, like very angrily and going, fucking what? <laughs> And it wasn't until I was much older and he was dead that that I really started thinking about that. And, And then, I mean, he was right. Like, if you think something that you've done is perfect, you close the doors to, you know, a different way of doing something, you know, a different culture, a different mentality, a different way of thinking, a different way of doing it that might be faster, better, greater, whatever. If you think what you're doing is perfect, you are fucked. I think as a person. So that's one thing for me. Is like and I know you've got a new thing, you know, question everything. I and it's like that's that that philosophy of of questioning everything. You have to question yourself more than anyone else around you all the fucking time because what you're doing probably isn't perfect and there's always a better way. And you will get more life experiences and and greater relationships and greater everything in your life if you do it. That's one thing. Second thing I learned is, or I live by, is that talent left unnoticed. Really, like that, that's one of the worst things, I think, in any industry, but particularly in our industry in hospitality, is that there are talented people, and you would see it all the time as well. You, you, like, you, you're a person that recognizes talent. If, if talent comes into your business and, it, and it's left unacknowledged and unnoticed, it will fucking die. And then after it dies, it turns into fucking resentment and anger and manifests into loads of other really shit things. And so I am constantly trying to recognize people, no, no matter how small their talent is or, or, or help them find what their talent is because the world is a better place because of it. And I think that's it, it. it's such an important thing for me. The third thing is um, that an obsession can be far more dangerous than an addiction. And that's the thing I think I've learned when I wrote the book, that if I look back at the, the book mm. and the fucking chaos that, that was in my life in the 45 years that I've lived, that I think the obsession of food actually did more damage to my life and the people around me than addiction
0: ever did. So, I mean, it's in in a way another form of addiction. And look, I absolutely understand that one probably you know actually I relate to all three of those but the the final one you know I often think that like you know so many people around my life have been sacrificed you know I mean not in huge ways hopefully but like certainly in a series of small ways for my obsession about what it is that I pursue professionally like there's no doubt that I'm obsessed by it and other people have you know made enormous sacrifices in their lives so that I can pursue my obsession I'm interested in that you understanding that now and yet how does it affect like there's a difference sometimes between the understanding that you've got an obsession with food Mm -hmm. and it's had you know good bad and indifferent effects on your life but are you able to not only recognize that you have an obsession but also step away from it enough to be able to reframe it a little so that it doesn't you don't know, have those you know, consequences on the rest of your life?
1: Yeah, it's the only reason I'm fucking married. Like, you know, Lods, she's a fucking hard woman. Like, you know, and, you know, she's like, I'm batting above my average. Like, she's an amazing woman. And I think for me... The well, end- so
0: yeah, for those who don't know, you are married to uh, Lauren Freed, who people would know from Gruen. Yes. She's been a regular guest on my show, Gruen, for a decade. And uh, just a really... Super successful, and of course, people. Uh, one of the original philosophy guests. She was like, I think, in the, about the first ten people I've ever had on this podcast. So, uh, you may be the first husband and wife team that I've had on in the in the history of the podcast. I'm not sure. I haven't gone through and checked, but I think that is the case But it is, but it's not the first marriage for either of you either. No, we're, like you
1: both. Yeah, we're both on our third marriage, and yeah. and but she's such an intelligent woman. She wouldn't have fucking looked at me ten years ago. Like you know, I, I think I had a lot of searching and well, soul searching and and finding myself before I was ready to meet her. And and likewise for her, for me. But I think uh, ultimately um, I, I have learned to, so the obsessive side of me, like people ask me a lot of this, like, you know, can you be around drugs? Like I can be around pals racking up and doing whatever the fuck they want. And I'd, I feel nothing, nothing in me makes me, want to go there like I've, I've got no desire i'm not tempted in the fucking slightest but obsession like food obsession like I, like i might try a. i don't know how to explain this best way to explain it like what so the, i remember obsessing about how to make a malteser right like fucking maltesers do you like maltesers Yeah, I love Maltesers. I fucking love Maltesers. How fucking good are they? Malty, crunchy, light as air, covered in chocolate. There's no flat spot in the chocolate. My brain's like, how the fuck, how do they get the fucking chocolate? There's no flat bit, so they're dipping it in chocolate, and then what happens? How the fuck do they, do the fucking, how do they make it float to make the chocolate set? And there's not, like, you know... Also, how does the air stay in there? But yeah, it's crispy and it melts in your mouth. So I started obsessing about how to make a fucking Malteser. That was an eight, nine month obsession that everything in my fucking life stopped around me because I wanted to learn how to make this fucking Malteser. And that was at the very beginning of Loz and I being together. And everyone at work around me was like, fucking, what have you, like, everyone was just like, have you have you done it yet? And I was like, nah, I'm just like I've I've just got you know I was starting to like lie to myself that I was almost there and trying to do you know what I mean? And at that point I hadn't really I'd been to a psychologist I'd I'd been told I was high functioning OCD and I was I've had a very binary I was a binary person who it was ones and zeros either something was really fucking good or it was fucking shit and there was nothing in between so in my life there was no shades of grey. And so I applied that to everything from a roll of fucking toilet paper. Like if it was, you know, if you, if you, if I undid a roll of toilet paper and you know how sometimes that one half sheet, if it's two ply goes round the wrong way and then it's all fucked and mm-hmm. the, 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 the tears are out of line. I'd throw the whole fucking thing in the bin. Like get the fuck out of my life, you shit, fuck off. New roll, right? That was me and I would apply it to relationships, objects, fucking uh-huh. computer equipment, anything. Pair of glasses, didn't matter what it was. And so I was doing that to relationships, people, marriages, everything. And it wasn't until I started getting really good psychology uh, assistance that I recognized that. And then they started teaching me to recognize my behavior when my brain kicked into that obsessive mode and started doing weird shit. And so... I do start doing weird shit like hiding. Like I'll be on my phone and I'll be like, you know, lots will be like, what are you doing? And if I catch myself telling a fib, like, oh, nothing, I'm just checking whatever. It's like, that's one of my, that's one of my tells. It's like I'm fucking lying about something that potentially is about to become an obsession. Do you know what I mean? It's like I, I, I I've I, I've, I've learned to recognize the wee stupid shit that I do when I start hiding things. That's the first sign that I'm maybe going to start obsessing over something. So I've kind of learned... You know, like, and you must be the same. There's like you—you're a creative person, so I'm a, I consider myself to be a creative mind, and I think creative people do that. You go through these cycles of, of, of obsession,
0: and you need to recognise when you're doing it. Otherwise, you start going down a wormhole. You must be the same. Well, I mean, it's, it, yes, but it's also part of the skill set, right? Like, I mean, in the, same, in the same way as everybody can talk, everybody could cook if they were willing to be obsessed enough about learning how to do it, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, yes, you want to have some aptitude towards it or some sort of like, natural you know, perhaps talent. some natural talent in it. But in a general sense, it is really just, it's like a magic trick. Anyone could learn how to do a magic trick. It's just impressive that somebody spent the 10,000 hours learning how to do it. True. They were obsessed enough to work out how to do it and to learn how to do it. The obsession is obviously an integral part of what makes you good at what you do as well. So you have to find that balance between how can I use the obsessiveness that is positive positive. To you know, wanting to spend you know three weeks unlocking one fucking joke, or you know you know spending nine months working out how a fucking Malteser works. When you could probably just ring up the people who make Maltesers and go, "Could you just run us through how a Malteser works?" But clearly, that's not what you wanted. You wanted to be able to work it out yourself, how a Malteser. Uh, absolutely,
1: worked, right? I, I, it is, but also it's it's kind of I enjoy the process, and and yeah. maybe it's the same for you. I I enjoy the process of of discovery you know what i mean and and the harder it is the better and i think my old man always used to say to me if there's a fucking hard way to do something you'll find it like ever since i was a kid you know like it just (laughs) and he's right and I, i think i've got a natural aptitude to find the most difficult fucking path i mean i've certainly done it in life um but but i enjoy the process of of working something out and i enjoyed the process of being obsessed with something enough to to be excellent at it and to be and to master it like i enjoy being a master of making pasta or you know like making a a, a, an absolutely perfect pasta carbonara or you know like that i enjoy the mastery of something after i've done it but in a way and I'll be interested in it from you if it's the same. Once I've mastered it in a way, I'm kind of not interested in it anymore. I've fucking done it. I'll push it to the side and, and move on to the next thing. Is that the same for you with what you do or not? Yeah,
0: I mean, it's absolutely the same. And it's actually one of the things that I wish that was less so because it would be great to be able to enjoy that moment of mastering something. I have a secret theory about stand-up comedy that people decide to be stand up comedians because they want to sign themselves up to a life of trying to master something that is inherently unmasterable like you can master it for minutes or moments and then it moves on and it's you know completely gone and you have to start again and there's just got to be a part of your brain that enjoys that enjoys the idea of i'm going to dedicate my life to trying to master something that i'm never going to be able to stand there and go yep i absolutely nailed this i absolutely mastered it i'm going to spend a lifetime pursuing it and never fucking master it i'll just have moments within there that i could just cling on to desperately but i'm interested in like third time around in a marriage that's what i i'm very interested in that because you know, obviously you, you talked about that idea that you were rejecting things in your life because they weren't like, you know, you were like, well, this doesn't fit into my world or this doesn't fit into my idea of like what perfection is. You know, you're not g- getting the lesson of your your granddad at that stage about nobody's perfect. You're judging other, even though you're not perfect yourself, you're judging other people and totally. their relationship to you and your world based on that they don't perfectly fit in, which is, you know, it, I mean, a thing that we have all done in our lives, but were you nervous about going around again, like finding love again, like you know, going into a relationship again, you know, a third time around, like in the marriage sense?
1: Yeah, I, de- I definitely was. I think I, I resigned myself to just not being bothered about it. I I, I just felt that because all I wanted to be was a nono, right? Like I I I, I remember looking at my nono. Um, he, he was an incredible guy, and and super Italian looking and Italian guy, you know? And and he was so present with us as kids that there was something even me as a kid and he died when I was really young, but even looking at him, I was just like, fuck, I want to be like him. Like I want to be, I want to be like that. And when I got old enough to understand, you know, that I might get married and have kids, I I was already thinking about being a nono, And so I wanted, I wanted the, 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 fam, the Sunday family table with my kids and their kids and me being a nonno and cooking for the fat, and they have a big family Italian table. And, you know, that was in my brain long before I got married. And then the first marriage came and went and we had a child together. And when we separated, it just killed me that it, it felt like that I'd lost my chance of that thing that I'd always wanted. Do you know what I mean? And then it happened again the second time. And, you know, and, and no doubt because of me, you know, that that marriage fell apart and and my behavior as a human. Um, But when we also had a child from that marriage, so now I'm two marriages down, two kids from two separate mums. And now I'm feeling really shit about me as a person, but I'm also feeling shit about my chances of, of, you know, having that, that thing that I always wanted. And, so I kind of I was angry at the world. I was angry at me. I was angry at women. I was angry at, at at just not, not having that thing that I that I'd always wanted, and it wasn't until I started getting help, uh, and started to unpack me, and myself uh, before I was ready to even just resign and go well fuck it if it is what it is I've got two beautiful children. Um, two beautiful daughters who I love and adore. And if that's my lot in life, that's it. And I'd fucking deserve it because quite frankly, I'm lucky to be here, let alone anything else, I have two amazing kids. So, and then once I was on that sort of path of of coming to terms with myself, my behavior over the years and and the position where I'd ended up, laws came into my life in such a way where I wasn't looking anyway. And then she was at a stage in her life where... You know she also knew the shit that she didn't want in a relationship you know she knew what she didn't want in a guy and in her life moving forward and we both met each other and were just like horrifically honest you know
0: i think over the course of so that that's what i was going to ask you because when you have you know this baggage yeah you know, let's call it that and you've talked you know to me a few times already in this like chat about the idea of you're at your worst when you're keeping secrets, mm. you know? Like, yeah, that's where your bad habits are as soon as something becomes secretive, you know, having to have your addiction and hide your addiction and the effect that that has on the rest of your life when you can't be totally honest with people, you know? So I, I always think, you know, when you first start dating somebody, I mean, we're all keeping our worst behaviour a little bit secret at the start. <laughs> when you guys started dating, how how soon were you putting the dirty laundry on the table? I,
1: it, we had it was quick right so we had this we had this date uh, I was in Adelaide she was in Sydney and a friend of ours a, a, a mutual not a mutual friend it was her friend had met me I was our Krug ambassador I was cooking at his Krug function she came up said hi uh, sent laws a picture of me and said I met the perfect guy for you he's European he's a foodie he's fantastic sent the picture on WhatsApp, Laws was like, "Yeah, great, that sounds fantastic." She was in Paris at the time, getting over a breakup, yeah. and I've mate said, "I'll introduce you when you get back." Never did. Loz is in a car at Christmas or uh, uh, September time, going to a. A mum's, our family dinner or something. She's in the taxi deleting, you know how WhatsApp sucks in all the photos from your fucking groups and puts mm-hmm. them in your folder. She's deleting, mm-hmm. I don't know, dick pics and everything else that is in her WhatsApp groups. <laughs> Comes across a photo of me and was like, oh, that's that guy. So she looks me up on Twitter, follows me on Twitter. I never look at fucking Twitter. So I, I noticed that, that, that uh, she'd followed me on Twitter and I recognized her from growing. So I followed her back and I don't really use Twitter that much. And then I would have been a a couple of nights later, I noticed in my notifications that that she'd accepted the friend request or whatever the fuck it is, however it works. And then she sent me a message and said, hey, you know how are you, blah, blah, like reached out. And I was like, wow, yeah, right. And then we started a conversation on a Saturday night. That led to us talking all night. Right on messages, exchange numbers. We we'll text message until like five in the morning. I'm like, hey, I need to get up and take the kids and whatever. I had the girls staying at my house, and I said, how about I take you out for dinner? And she goes, well, you're in Adelaide. I goes, yeah, it's fine. I'll fly up to Sydney. So that was that was Sunday morning. I asked her to go for dinner. Tuesday, I flew up. We went out for dinner. Um, and that's that. Do was, you, re-
0: you remember? Do you remember where you went to dinner? You, by the way, I do.
1: We went. We met at the W Hotel. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, for a drink. And I had a couple of whiskeys to calm my nerves because I thought she was stunning and amazing. I had a couple of whiskeys and then then I was drinking, I had a whiskey and I thought, fuck, there's no way she's a whiskey drinker. I'll get a car, I reckon she's a martini drinker. So I bought a couple of martinis and had them ready. She walked in through the door, smiled and you know the laws, she's fucking gorgeous. She walked through the the, the, the doors and just a smile. She had a hat on and a flowy dress. And I was just like fucking fell in love with her straight away. Just the smile. She loved martinis. Great start. We got in a boat and we went to... Um, what is it? The, there's a pub in a bay uh, across the bay in Sydney. Not Hunter's Hill. Um, I can't remember the name of it anyway. But we went by... By taxi, what a taxi, over to to this hotel. That I can't remember the name of now. It's escaped me. We had a bottle of champagne. Um, and then that was it, we, that was our date. We got back in a water taxi, I dropped her off. We arranged to go out that night to Fratelli Paradiso and we went out for dinner. Um, she was a regular there. She used to go there every night and write in our journal and you know, as a single woman to rationalize in her thoughts or whatever. <laughs> and they fucking loved her and their Fratellis, right? And yeah. I was the imposter because she'd been there, she used to eat there three, four times a night, a week. Right. And they were looking at me like, you know, so they asked her if she wanted a drink when he sat down, they got her a drink and I'm like, fuck, there's any chance I can have a fucking drink, <laughs> Jesus Christ, you know? So that was the first day, right? We yeah. then, and then we stayed together. I stayed at her place and then uh, in the rocks and then our date continued into Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I needed to get back to Adelaide to the restaurant and I said, I need to go. I was at the airport and I was thinking, fuck, Like, actually, I don't really want to go home. And I sent her a message. and said, oh, you know, like, fuck, it's been an amazing week. It's been great getting to know you. And over that time, as we were talking about before, we both poured everything out. All of the shit bits about our marriages and relationships, the bits we were shit at, failed at, lied about, all of that stuff. And so I'd said, I just, I want to keep talking to you. I want to know more. And then she was like, I'm on my way to the airport. And so she came. to to the airport I I was already on the way to Adelaide I did service and she came to my place up in the Adelaide hills and we spent the weekend up in the hills and so what ended up being a a date on the Tuesday ended up being a two-week date where we never left each other and during that two weeks it it was it was like a pre-relationship cathartic bomb where we both carpet bombed each other with all of the horrific moments of relationships and our inner self our fears uh, and all the things that we hated about ourselves and and what we've done in relationships and sabotage self-sabotage you name it it was all on the table and that was how we started.
0: So why do you think it was so open like that I mean do you have a sense of you know because that is like It's almost like two counter-narratives, mm. the story that you've told. Like, if you were saying it... I mean, I know, Lauren, so I guess... I understand it perhaps a little bit more because she is the sort of person that you can talk to quite openly and I can imagine her also talking quite openly. But you're talking on one level about this romantic, you know, love at first sight, you know, almost story where, you know, two people go out to dinner and, you know, never apart for the rest of their fucking lives sort of thing. But at the same time, two people just going, oh, by the way... Um, this is really great, but I've got all these bags and they're all full of a whole bunch of shit. And like, so what was it that made you both feel, I think, can you remember what it was that made you feel like I can just be open with all this? I'm not going to scare her away by telling her all these things about me. Was there some sense of what you had at the time? Like, what was it that made you think, that that was a good approach. I think at the very beginning, right? I, I was absolutely
1: shocked that she was even talking to me, let alone having dinner with me. Right? Like seriously, I was looking at this woman who was, you know, I uh, was running a, a, a marketing agency for seventeen years and was like a fucking big deal. You know what I mean? And she was wanting to go out for dinner with me, and I thought, well, you know, I might as well, I might as well get the shit out. You know, like, and she's going to fucking hate the fact, you know, the, the drugs, the, you know, the kids that, or like, all, like, I didn't just have fucking baggage, Well, I had fucking semi-trailers of that shit with containers yeah. fucking stacked behind them. <laughs> there was all the baggage in the fucking world. And I thought at the beginning, it, it, like... It, she's, she's going to fucking hate this. So I might as well get it over with. Get it out of there. She can say it's been fucking nice hanging out and having dinner. You know, maybe we'll catch up sometime, you know, see you later. And I thought, I'm just going to get it all out fucking and get get this over with. And then I can move on to going back to being fucking single and, you know, and not worrying about a relationship. And it was the opposite. I think, you know, I what I found was somebody who, who looked Thought and cared and talked about my baggage in such a different way and with such care and empathy and and understanding that not only you know could she sit there and go well you that was such a fucking dumbass thing to do why did you do that but at the same time go well there must have been a reason why you did that you know and and that's lots that's she's got that ability to 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 you know, not just look at something at face value and go, you're a fucking junkie, get out of my fucking life, you know? Like, once a junkie, always a junkie, whatever. And I think that was it for me. In the beginning, I was just like, I thought I had no chance with her. And so I thought I was going to scare her off the first mention of of any of my baggage. And so I thought I'd just get it out. But I think as we started to get to know each other, um, you know, and and she had baggage from two previous marriages. and, And as I said before, I think, we, we both understood what we didn't want in a relationship, what we didn't want in life as well. Forget about our relationship. We knew that we both wanted so much more out of life and we were excited to get about it and get after it um, that, that it was easy to start unpacking the baggage and the shit things and talk about it openly and without reservation, you know?
0: Because one of the interesting things about your partnership with Lauren is that it became much more than just a, romantic partnership i mean obviously you have a family together but i i'm talking more about the fact that you were incorporated into each other's worlds like you know she obviously you know you became partners both you know in a business sense you know as well as like in a you know personal sense so tell me a little bit about how that happened
1: um i think my like my work life i think has you know since you know, I, I think I'd say pre, like probably since Arana, since I started doing Arana, and, and the restaurant became, you know, it was the best in Australia, and and it got to number one, and all the rest of this stuff. It, it became uh, such a busy business as as Jock, you know, uh, not just the restaurant, but everything around. Getting asked to do things and go and speak and uh, and and tell your story and why you did things and why we did the restaurant and working the way we have in indigenous communities to, to bring acknowledgement for them through food, it just became this big thing. And laws embraced that part of, of, of my life. And I, I'm such a disorganized, I don't know what you're like, I, I am the most disorganized fucking person you will ever meet when it comes to anything outside of the kitchen. Mm-hmm. In a kitchen, everything is like fucking 10 soldiers, beautiful. When it, like, if you look at my desk at home, it's a fucking nightmare. Like, it, honestly, there is nothing tidy or organized. And so, Los Kamenche was just like, fucking hell. Like, you, you know, when we talked about your life being like a whirlwind or a tornado with us, just like, you get shit done. But the chaos and the turmoil that is left in your wake is astonishing. And we need to sort that out because for you to do more and achieve the things that you really want to achieve, there needs to be some organization around your life and the way you're doing things. And so Loz started managing, along with still doing her agency, she started managing me. Um, And it just got beyond busy for her. Um, And then by that time we bought a house together, she, you know, she was pregnant with Alfie, and it was just like we've made a life together with each other, and we've got to work out the best way forward. And is the best way forward for both of us to have, you know, this, you know, presence in a business. You know, like if you know, and Pulse was such as you know, it was such a huge agency that did massive pieces of work, you know, in in, in all different stuff and the whole entrepreneurial thing as well. And then you've got my stuff, which was you know, so big and getting bigger. Um, We had to rationalize, you know, is it going to be possible in our life if we want to achieve the things we want in our life, are we better off just combining at some point and going, we need to move together forward as a force and we're stronger and better as a, as a, a combined force rather than both of us doing our own thing. And that was the moment where it was like, right, you know, Loz was like, I've, I've had the agency for such a long time. Um, you know, I, I, I am more intrigued and more interested in our life together and building a business together than I am doing my own thing anymore. And that was the point where we, where we merged and became this team, um, which I, I just, I couldn't, we couldn't have done. I couldn't have done any of the stuff that I've done in the last five years without without her input and, and her thinking, uh, and her ability to organize um, everything as well. I mean, it, it's phenomenal. And, and it's worked really, really well. A lot of people talk about, you know, working with the partner has been really bad and hard. And yeah, sure, so, sometimes it is hard. And, you know, I think often we've got a. I, I like I'm a practical joker. I know generally I have the ability to play a practical joke at the least appropriate moment when I think it's so fucking appropriate and it's like, it's not appropriate at all. Like today, we've just moved into this place in Collingwood and we're starting a new business called Oco House, which we're doing sort of content around food and, and the home, right? And so we've just taken this place. i moved a lot, a bunch of stuff in there yesterday. Loz walks in in the morning and I, and I thought it would be funny to like, you know, put my mask on and whatever and hide around the corner and scare the fucking shit out of her. Mm. Unbeknown to me, she walks through the doors and she's carrying a really heavy fucking printer and starts walking up the stairs as I jump around the corner and scare the shit out of her. She nearly drops the fucking printer, which is really expensive, down the stairs, shits herself. She's not feeling well this morning. On top of that, she's now a bit angry when she's walking up the stairs. So I, you know, there's moments where... If you know, we, we know that we can have an argument and bounce back from it because there'll be a moment where I'll just burst out laughing and go, fuck, let's reset. You know, like right. and you need to work that out. That's not something I think that everyone can have. It's something that we've learned to 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 do. That um, there are moments when you work together with your partner where it's high pressure and you're just gonna fucking you you're not like that, you're like that. And you need to find your way through working together where where you can you can reset for a moment and then come together again, and we've managed to do that. We managed to find that way really quickly, thankfully um despite the fact I still haven't fucking learned when it's appropriate to play a practical job. What was the first meal you ever cooked for her um It was carbonara because it was it's one of our favorite pasta dishes, and um you know she was banging on about how she loved carbonara and I can remember telling me she had some fucking carbonara from some restaurant somewhere that was fucking amazing it was the best fucking carbonara I've ever had in my life I was like
0: fuck off
1: I said wait till you have my carbonara so that was the first thing I cooked her was, was carbonara at, at my place up in the Adelaide Hills I had uh, when she arrived I, like I, f- I finished service bolted up home put the fire on had a couple of bottles of champagne on ice um, and then had all the prep ready to make pasta from from fresh, all the, you know, the guanciale and everything ready to make proper carbonara, no fucking cream, no fucking white wine, no fucking garlic, just in case anyone's wondering. Um, <laughs> and, and I made her pasta carbonara, and of course it was the best carbonara she'd ever had, and she fucking loved it.
0: <laughs> you talked about um, your restaurant, and you did, in fact, like I, I was around for this journey to see from behind the scenes, you know, you're going from having this restaurant to being, you know, recognised as being the best restaurant in Australia and, you know, everything that comes with, you know, that, but one of the things I'm most fascinated by was, you know, obviously you were very, you were very into using indigenous Australian, native Australian ingredients. Um, Where did that fascination initially come from?
1: Um, I, uh, the I came out for a year in the nineties and, you know, being a you know UK guy, I, I had heard about obviously Australia had a black culture, and that they'd been there for at that, at that time. We were talking that, that they thought you know uh, Indigenous Australians have been around for, for thirty five to forty thousand years. I think that that's what they were saying back then, and I was like, wow, fucking hell! Just imagine what their what what their food is. Do you know? What I mean? But that's what I thought. That that was the first thing I thought about, and. Because if you're from Europe, you're used to, and certainly for me, being half Scottish, half Italian, I, I understood what culture was pretty early without really knowing what culture was. I knew that we, I understood cultural difference between Italian and Scottish. And so, and obviously being in Europe, you, you fly, you know, on holidays to Spain. And so you're eating Spanish and you're like, oh yeah, Spanish culture and the food's different. And it's, so immediately I thought Australia, great. When I go over there to work for a year, I'm going to see some epic stuff I've never seen in my career. And instead, I came out, I didn't really see anything. And I didn't see Indigenous people hardly at all because I worked in Sydney for the entire 12 months. But also, it was like there was this, there was a little bit of native ingredients kicking around. There was Edna's Table in Sydney. There was, Vic Cherikov was doing some stuff, Andrew Felke, but there was a general distaste Generally, about native ingredients, and people say, Nah, it's rubbish, I don't like it. You know, and there's, I was like, Well, there must, there must be a, an indigenous cuisine or something, like, you know, like Spanish cuisine, Italian cuisine, Japanese cuisine, Chinese. There must be something, and they're like, Nah, nothing, it doesn't exist. You know, Aboriginal people, the hunter gatherers, the eco's are hungry. That was what I got told. After a year of being in Australia, I thought it just can't be right. It just, and I and I moved back to the UK after that year, and it just it never left my brain. I was just thinking, it, like, how can a culture be there for that long and there not be any cuisine or food that's interesting? It's it's it that has to be impossible. Like I understand what I was being told, like I, by by people that were pretty high up and in, in, in the world of chefs, but. I just thought, that just can't be right, you know? And so when I emigrated, I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna investigate that. And so I started using, I was working at 41 in Sydney, restaurant 41. I started using these native ingredients, I put them in the menu and we got a horrific review. Uh, I can't remember who it was that wrote wrote, I think it might have been Leah Schofield or someone. Anyway, they, they wrote a review and was like, you know, it's like a, he's using these ingredients and it's like a hark back to Bush Tucker cuisine, it's rubbish, it, you know? And the guy who owned the restaurant at the time said, hey, we can't, like, that's enough. Like, we're not doing this. You know, you want to investigate that stuff, do it in your own time. And I was like, right. And that was, you know, I, I, that was a moment for me where I thought, well, I know I'm being told that, but at the same time, it j- still doesn't feel right. It doesn't sit right with me. And I didn't know any indigenous people at all. So I went to, down to Circular Key because I knew there was guys indigenous guys busking down there. So there was a guy down there with a Yiddicky and he's he's busking with a ditch. And I introduced myself, his name was Jimmy. I said, hey, can I sit down and talk to you about where you come from, what you ate growing up, who cooked it? And he was like, yeah, brother, sit down, sit down. And that led to a four-hour conversation that fucking changed the direction of my life because the stuff he was talking about, about being connected to his culture, being connected to the land, as people and their people being a part of the land not living on the land was such a fucking brain blowing moment for me it was so different than anything that i had been brought up around like you know we we even in the Italian family who who love growing shit in the backyard, like all Italians, fucking all, all sorts of shit growing in your backyard if you're Italian. But you you're you consider yourself as as living on the land and caring for the land and growing stuff and whatever, but you've never thought of yourself as being a part of the land. Jimmy telling me about having any any language group around the country having at least six seasons, about you know how if i looked at the map of of indigenous culture in australia there would be hundreds of language groups that that just don't exist in in a map that i would look at about how you know he would know that stingrays had fat livers when when a lily blossomed at the beach and that was their sign that they would go and hunt those stingrays at that time and make this certain dish where, where they they removed the livers and then just heart, just kissed the outside of the livers and then mashed those fat livers into the cooked fish meat to make these fish balls. My, my mouth's watering now thinking about it. And you got to remember, at that time I'd been told that they just ate because they were hungry. But this conversation was not that. This conversation was a very, it was philosophical. It was talking about, specific ways of cooking things that were different and they were having, you know, differences of opinion within a community of whether to sort of half-smoke it or boil it in water. They were talking about seasoning stuff with seawater because it was the best natural flavour and the best way to get the most flavour out of the fish. As a chef, it fucking blew my mind. And as a person, it just made me think, fucking hell, what's going on here? How's nobody talking about this? Because... like I'm interested in it as a chef but if people are willing to queue round city blocks to look at the fucking pharaohs and fucking shit that was in the pharaohs tombs how come nobody wants to fucking know about this because I thought it was literally amazing the most amazing shit I'd ever heard in my life And that well,
0: was the, the moment. The, re- the, the reason I would argue is that there's been a deliberate disenfranchisement of the original owners of this land because like coloni- colonization just exists on this lie that, you know, the indigenous people of Australia, you know, couldn't you know, put together a wheel or couldn't cook anything and ate because they're hungry. All of that is just part of us justifying the fact that the British came here and stole the country from them. And, you know, if we actually talk about the fact that they had agriculture and farming and cooking and all these sort of things before we were here, it makes it a lot, like, harder to sell that myth to people. That's right. But also
1: as a, as a, as a you know, I, you, I mean, I was, where well, I would have been then, 20, 23, 24, I would have been, 23, I think. And, and having no idea about Aboriginal people of Australia... I had no idea. So I, I was coming at it from a, a whole different situation, imagining that, 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 that there wasn't a fucking problem, like very naively, I get that now. But, you know, I, I was just then in a situation of going, well... I was just scratching my head going, what the fuck's going on? Mm. Like, I, I, just, I, I, I just thought, this is fucking, it can't be fucking right. You know what I mean? Like, right. and even if you think of the advent of, like, remember when Wikipedia happened and stuff and you'd search, like, you know, first loaf of bread made. I think even if you probably look at it now, I'd be interested in all. Like, if if you look at Wikipedia now, where does it say the first loaf of bread made? I bet you it's not fucking Australia, but it should be. Mm. You know what I mean? And I think it, it at that point in time, I just was in a situation of disbelief of, of how can, what I was hearing was that this was without question one of the most important cultures in the world, right? With some of the most beautiful stories and, and beautiful philosophies in life that we were all aspiring to, to, to and we have been for such a long time, we aspire to get close to that sort of level of connection to nature and, and produce and where our food comes from and the cycle of nature. How is it that there there is this fucking disparity? Why is there this fucking great divide between fucking black and white in Australia? That's all that I was thinking when I was sitting down talking to Jimmy. And that was... That was a moment for me that changed the path of where I was going. And that was how I got interested in not just Indigenous ingredients, but the thought of trying to bring acknowledgement for for, for their culture and their people. And the only way I knew how to do that was through food.
0: So then that becomes – there is some, like, you know, trickiness that comes with that because oh. you're not an Indigenous Australian. No shit. Like, you know, and you you're suddenly going to, you know, like, I mean – in any situation like this it suddenly becomes a very complex area because it's like well you are not an indigenous person yourself can you use these indigenous techniques how can you celebrate them without exploiting them like you must have had a series of challenges along the way where sometimes good intentions meet up against you know things that you hadn't thought about or things that you know just culturally that you need to like you know deal with on different levels is that accurate
1: um, it is accurate I, and, I, and I continue to face issues with the fact that I am interested in that area and, and, and that culture. And at the beginning, though, um, you know, I always went about things the right way with the best intentions, right? So if you start there and you start looking at the discussions, the relationships that i built within communities with elders on country, um, I was given you know, knowledge and and, and information and taught things by elders and asked to use my voice in my industry because I had a a voice that was greater than theirs in terms of being able to spread a message. Um, I was being asked to tell their story through food. That was what they asked of me. And... So for me, it was like, I, if I think of the first community I ever went to, like i whipped out a notebook and fucking started writing shit down and they fucking took it off me and threw it in a bin. And you know, it's like, you weren't allowed to take photos or write shit down or whatever. And I got told, if, if you want to fucking learn, open your ears and fucking listen. And that was it. And I was like, it was like going back to school, you know? But being trusted, there was definitely a feeling of being trusted by elders with knowledge. That, that that didn't escape me and it was super important. And so I felt the need to be protective of that. And I had an understanding that it's not something that, that, that I, I would ever want to abuse or or misunderstand or, or misappropriate in any way. And so all the way through my career of using those ingredients, of visiting communities, of starting the Irana Foundation and doing work in there is you know, I've never done anything without without it being at the request of of, of a community or, a, or an elder or a group that I've worked with on country. And it's always been done in a way that they wanted it done, not the way that I think it should be done, um, despite the cost of that. Um, and so I've always had this path that I knew was right. Why? Because... I've always been, advised, my advisors along the whole way have been elders and people on country, not the fucking sarcastic eyed, thin lipped, fucking white assholes that sit on the fucking outskirts protecting their $250,000 a year fucking wage who are fucking gatekeepers, who want to protect that fucking job that they've got, you know, and that's fine, that's okay. Um, for me, I knew, and I was told by them, you're gonna get fucked over you know, and I was like, I'll be fine. You know, like all I'm doing is if I stick to the advice that I'm getting only off of elders, then I'll be fine. But of course, you know, that's never the fucking case. There's always someone out there that wants to fucking drag you down as you know.
0: So, um, I'm very interested in like the state of the restaurant industry at the moment, the hospitality industry at the moment. Obviously, in the entertainment industry, like we've been decimated by the global pandemic, you know. Mm. Um, and I look at the restaurant industry, and it seems that obviously, you know, you don't have to be a genius to recognise the incredible, you know, um, ill effects that it's had on the hospitality industry in general. But I like particularly that top end fine dining is, is like, can you even afford for that? to exist in like the current world that we live in like are we going to see I mean I just look at the overheads of fine dining and like the you know the small profit margins that comes with a lot of fine dining and then the fact that you know you're getting restaurants that can only seat half the tables that they would normally seat and have to have all these extra layers of you know precaution and and whatever else there is inbuilt in there is it going to have a long-term detrimental effect on the restaurant industry do you think i think it already has
1: i think i think we're we're, we're two years into this nearly and and you know, I, I think there'll always be a place for a fine dining restaurant. You know, people always want to celebrate, have engagements, birthdays, et cetera, right? So I think a, a fine dining restaurant in some way, shape or form will, will inevitably always exist. But I, I think even if you think of before the pandemic started, I, I don't think people realized the true cost of a meal. You know, I don't I don't think the, what people were paying, whether it be fine dining or a takeaway Thai, is, is not actually the cost, the true cost of what it was. And I think, you know, if you look at um, chefs and uh, working stupid amounts of hours and not being paid for every time, then it was just, it was one of those things in our industry where you just work, you know, and it didn't really matter how many hours you did. You are you were a creative person as a chef and you worked whatever it took to get the job done and you do not really care, right? If now we're at a stage where, you know, the call out culture's all over the wage theft thing. And so, if you think of, you know, even if you were a young kid that wanted to get ahead and, and do an internship, if you like, you're not allowed, right? I think that's bad. Park that to the side. But if you're paying every member of staff for every single hour they work, you need to adjust what you're charging because, you know, the labor's the most expensive cost. And if you then look at behind that, the second most expensive cost is the produce. If they're paying every single person for every single minute that they work, then that produce should also cost more. All of a sudden, you as a punter going into your restaurant, whether it's a Thai takeaway or fine dining, should be paying twice what you're paying now, right? That's the impact that everyone needs to get their head around is that restaurants can't charge what they used to charge. They, they will not be able to charge uh, pre-COVID prices um, and we're in this stage now where, you, you know, certainly in Sydney, you know, everyone's doing this, they've pivoted and they're doing that sort of meals at home thing, and that's okay. It, there's kind of, a lot of people are saying, well, you know, how come it's the same price as what it would be if I was in the restaurant? It's like, it still costs money to produce the food, right. and then buy the packaging, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's, it, yeah. you know, it's, it's like for, for, for us at the restaurant, you know, we used to f- use foraged ingredients, and it's like, well, if you're if you're feeding me fucking weeds, how come it costs so much money? It's like I need to pay someone to feed the, to fucking forage the weeds, mate, and the car yeah. and the fucking transport and the, you know, like we've got to pay people and you still got to prep it and wash it and then we got to cook it and then we hire the staff to do it and you're eating off our plates and drinking our glasses and there's breakages and it costs them to fucking wash it and people don't realise the true cost of a restaurant. As I say, even if it is a takeaway. Still but close. even
0: like, I mean, I know with some of the ingredients you were using, like, you know, you, you, some of those are like six months plus processes yeah. as well. right? Yeah, like, you, you know, exactly. You, it's, yeah, you're not just picking it and putting it in a jar and serving <laughs> it on Tuesday night.
1: Like. No. And it's, you know, someone, we had an email last week with someone saying, oh, can you do a pop up? a pop-up Arana in Melbourne for a week, you know? And I was like, oh, you know, send us some more information. And they wanted to do it like starting from the 1st of September. I was like, there's just stuff that we ferment for, you know, three months, really, at least before, you know, we would be able to do a pop-up anyway. So it's just not as easy as flicking a switch and just doing it, you know what I mean? But I think our industry's in trouble because um, I don't think people are willing to pay the full cost of dining out. I think that's our biggest hurdle as an industry moving forward. I think um, people rationalise that it should only cost, you know, 20 bucks to have a takeaway meal or, you know, or Uber Eats or whatever. I think people only, they rationalise in their brain, I'm going out for dinner, it'll be about 50 bucks a head. It's like, how? How can it cost 50 bucks a head when you've got, you know, eight people in a kitchen, you've got you know another eight people out the front you've got a whole team you've got rent you've got you know what i mean and i think covid is just this gigantic reset for our industry at least and an opportunity for our industry to sort of put our hands up and go hey this is the true cost i know you're not gonna like it but don't (laughs) fucking shoot me you know it just is what it is you know and i hope we come out the other side of this and everyone's able to do that, and I hope that our clients, our customers, are able to to be accepting of it as well, you know what I mean, and give us a fair chance to still be able to create an experience for you as a diner um, and, and charge what we need to charge to do the right thing, not just by our staff, but by our producers, and still allow us as people in the industry to go home and have time with our kids and our family.
0: So speaking of that work life balance that's <laughs> something that but you know right so you're super busy the restaurant industry you know it, when you when you like everyone in the restaurant industry as you said doing incredible you know demanding hours often at the times when you would spend that time with your family as well that's the other thing Mm. it's not just the amount of hours but it's the timing of when those hours might be even when you're not in the restaurant game from day to day I mean I look at your life and with everything that you're doing how do you prioritize that balance between sort of work life and you know your life life your family life
1: Look, I'm a lot better at it now. I think because Arana um, had to close during, during COVID, I think, and, and now we don't have the restaurant anymore. I think the pressures of my time changed dramatically because I didn't have the restaurant, not just sort of being there for services, but also, you know, the, the, the workload that comes along with having 60 staff and and uh, and, and dealing with, produce, menu cycles, menu development. There's, there's so much more than just a day's service. And so when I removed that chunk out of my life, all of a sudden I had way more time to, to try and find that work-life balance. But you also start thinking about, you, well, you, you start realizing some things. i I, st- I realized after I didn't have a run anymore, the restaurant, that I had spent 30 years Um, working in restaurants to make sure that people could celebrate, have birthdays, great experiences, nights out. You know, I I made, I was working to make sure they could have that and they could have the best possible experience. And the cost of that was that I didn't get that. I didn't get that for 30 years. I didn't get, I missed my kids' birthdays. I missed my Fridays and Saturday nights with friends and my wife on previous marriages. I missed christmas and new year i missed the long weekends i missed the australia day celebrations i you know what i mean so as everyone else could have a fucking great time and i think it that has a toll after a period of time and you can turn into a resentful bitter little fucker if you're not careful you know what i mean and i think i, I not once i removed the restaurant part out of my life you're able to look at it and go it's so unfair you know that that the, the odds are stacked against you in terms of having friendships and relationships and anything else if you're in that industry. It's really difficult and you have gotta be really, really careful. For me now, MasterChef is a six month block where I really need to focus and my anxiety runs through the fucking roof because there's a hundred people on set looking at me and all that's gone through my head is they're all staring at me, waiting for me to fuck up. That's all that is in my head on the way to the cameras rolling and so i i've got a different kind of day where where i go through a different set of emotions and preparations outside of that time where i'm filming but that it's a six month chunk and you might have a couple of weeks off and then we filmed kids or we filmed celebrity this year so there's another month and a bit and then you you back up all the work, all the other business stuff that we've done gets backed up until filming's finishing and then all of a sudden it's opened the floodgates and you try and do as much of it as you can up until we start filming in November again and then it's back onto MasterChef where you need a clean head to, or I do anyway, to get through my own mental difficulties to to do what I do. So, I struggle with it, mate, And is the answer. You know, like I, I, it's a bit like the obsession thing. I need to pick up behavior patterns. If, I, if I, I can see behavior in my in-laws, I can see behavior in my kids if I'm not around enough. And that's enough for me to know that my, my balance is fucked. You know, I need, to, I need to reassess, you know, take a step back and fucking go, what the fuck's going
0: on, you know? Uh, look, I'm, I'm conscious about time, and, but there's some standard questions that I ask everybody. So um, uh, firstly, what do you think happens when we die? So I've seen a lot of ghosts. So I think there's something... Um,
1: I, I, don't, I don't know what it is. I think there's, I think there's something after we die, and I think there's, um, and I don't know if it's like a, I don't know if it's this fucking holding room or, or uh, but I've I've seen enough weird shit to know that there's something. So I, I don't know what it is, but I reckon there's, I reckon there is something after we die, without question.
0: Do you? care about being remembered once you die like is that something that like the idea of you know having some sort of legacy beyond your life is that important to you no i don't give a fuck you could throw me in a black bag and chuck me over the fence for all i care if
1: i've if i've managed to to you know bring up my kids well and and offer them a better life than i had then that's important to me and i think if i've i've manage to bring acknowledgement to indigenous people because it was asked of me through food, then I'd be happy as well. And I think that's it for me, you know, like family and, and that are the two things that, that, that I hope uh,
0: I've moved the
1: dial on a, a millimeter of the rest of it. Don't give a shit.
0: What's the best meal you ever had?
1: <sighs> um, the best restaurant meal I've ever had was uh, at a restaurant called El Cano in San Sebastian, where um, it's an amazing restaurant, Will. And if, if, if you've been to San Sebastian?
0: Never been, Fuck,
1: no. man. I, it just, like, when travel happens again, I, you need to talk to me, I'll get your book in there. The, it's a fish restaurant, and the, the, the fishermen cook the fucking fish. Like, the, they're out there in the boats in the morning getting the fishing spots, and they specialize in turbot, which is a, a flat fish. Um, European um, and it's it's like the king of flatfish it's fucking beautiful and at a certain period they only use it for a certain period of the year when when the livers are fat and it's the most luxurious assed piece of fish you'll ever in your life but the fact that the fisherman caught the fucker and then he cooks it for you it's not a particularly super fancy restaurant but you will never eat fish better than that restaurant in your life
0: What about non-restaurant? Is there like a food memory that you have, like you know, a moment where a non-restaurant, you know, meal that you think is the best one you've had?
1: I, I think I did a show called Nomad Chef years ago, and and I was lucky enough to go into um, these really tiny communities all over the world, and there was one meal that I had on uh, uh, Christmas time. It was like Christmas Eve in Ethiopia, and I was in a mud hut cooked by a family and it was, uh, they made injera, fresh injera bread, if you know what that is. Um, and there was this a uh, chickpea curry um, and all these different condiments. Um, and we all sat around with the kids in this mud hut. And the mud huts, they have, they keep, they keep their animals. they a couple of donkeys that were in a room of this mud hut. And they use that because it, it keeps the place warm. And I just felt so lucky and privileged and a lot of people would look at the, and go, so injera bread and fucking chickpea curry. What the fuck? How could that be the best meal of your life? It was the experience. And it was being allowed to sit there with a family on a special day, like Christmas day for them. And and had been welcomed in so openly. And no cameras, no nothing. Just to sit there and experience that with that family at the time was was one of the most epic experiences I've ever had. Unfortunately, the husband died like a day later a couple of days later there's a whole other story there and they thought it was voodoo mm. and fuck it was a fucking nightmare but anyway that it, but that moment <sighs> was amazing
0: <laughs> um so uh, I, I prefer the worst bit of advice but what's the best bit of advice or worst piece of advice you've ever received in your life
1: that the, the the worst piece of advice i think that i continually hear is when, when, you have, when you're when you struggling with something or you're going through something and it's a bit shit, right? And that could come in a lot of different things, whether it's like mm-hmm. forms of sexual abuse or workplace abuse or any sort of shit like that. And people go, oh, it'll just, it'll give you thicker skin, give you thick skin. Like that's the fucking, I still hear it today. I still hear people say that. I want to slap them. It's like, shut the fuck up. Seriously. Like it. I just, I think if something like that today, today's, day and age, I think it's the beginning of a lot of people's problems. And so if you are listening to this and you've said that in the last 12 months, fucking stop it. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, I uh, like to ask people this question. I have a little uh, piece of metal on my desk here. It, it, It has inscribed in it as close to an inspirational saying as uh, i you know subscribe to in my life it just says what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail and the way that i interpret that is very much when i'm like i use it a lot for work which is don't imagine what will make this project successful imagine the project is already successful what do you want it to be about who do you want to be working with what do you want to like you know like like so uh, you know Anyway that's what it means for me Love that. but that does is not what it needs to mean for you I'd just like you to answer the question what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail oh, I think I'm doing it well I honestly do I
1: feel as if I'm doing it and I, I never thought I'd say that but I think doing the stuff that that, that, that we are doing in the indigenous space as hard as it is 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 done in a way that 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 not not only I was asked to do it, but the way I wanna do it, the way that's right. Do you know what I mean? And you know, I couldn't imagine I couldn't imagine not doing it. And I think if I if I was on the other side of that saying, it would be, Oh, I don't want to fucking do it in case I fuck up or I'm um, you know, yeah. like I, I offend someone or, or whatever. Like that whole working in that space as a fucking white Scottish guy is Fucking all the problems in the world. And I think if I had never had the balls just to go, I'm gonna fucking do it, but work out that the only way to do it is to do it correctly and and stick to that path. <laughs> right? Stick yeah. to the path of going right. despite everyone yelling at this wow. side of my head, going, You can't fucking do that for all these fucking reasons, and just going, no, well actually I'm just gonna use indigenous people as my reference mentors Mm -hmm. and advice givers rather than you fucking dickheads, and I'll be fine. And the piece of advice that I got from day one of being in a community was, uh, and this old woman said it to me, and I've heard it from almost every indigenous elder that I've worked with across the years, which is give back more than you take. And she said to me that day, I was sitting in the the dust of her front yard and she said, whatever you do in your fucking life, whatever it is, whether it's this or whether it's your children or whether it's cooking, give back more than you take. And that is my little inscription thing that I've got, which I live by that, whether it's in the businesses that I run or whether it's the people I mentor or whether it's, uh, you know walking down the fucking street and flick flicking a dollar into a fucking bus car uh, you know like just be a better fucking person man you know like just give back more than you take
0: it's good it's it's very good look um, we're we're almost done the the um the book is called last shot um people should definitely uh read that um you know i think we did a good job of mentioning some of the stuff but not covering it too much i hate i hate those interviews when you someone's promoting a book where it's just like well we've just talked about all the stories in the book for the last hour and a half like we gave you a sense of some of it but you know there's plenty in the book for you to go and read um and, uh, of course, MasterChef will be back at some stage, I assume. Is the celebrity one the next one that will be on The
1: celebrity TV? one hits the screens, uh, I believe, in October. And then um, okay. we'll be back on the main series probably Easter next year and we start filming that in November.
0: What's it like uh, being really famous? Like, I mean, I mean, as in, like, you know, you spent a lot of your life, you know, working your way up through your industry and people within your industry would have been aware of who you are. But... Even when you are you have the number one restaurant in Australia, you're only famous really within a community of people who, like, love food, yeah, right? True. They're the people who know who the person who has the... But when you go onto a show like MasterChef, you're, like, famous, famous in that people... Now, who maybe have never been to a fine dining restaurant, still know who you are. You know, if they see you in the street, they know who you are. It's a different level of fame. It's fame outside your industry, it's just a broad sense of people knowing who you are. What's that mean like?
1: it gives me opportunities to be more of a, a practical joker. Um When we, <laughs> you know, it's particularly when you're in a supermarket or something. You know what I mean? Like, I like you can tell who the foodie people are in a supermarket. Like, I love people watching, but you know, you you like I'll. I mean, it's not unusual for me to be in a supermarket and just talk to people. You know, and people come up to me all the time and they want a selfie or whatever, and it's and I'll talk to them about the failed cake or fucking what I don't care. You know what I mean? But You'll see, like, my one of my favorites is people in supermarkets with pineapples. People really struggle to pick a ripe pineapple. And you can see, people do it the next time you're in a supermarket and just watch, hang around the pineapple bit for a bit and see, and you'll, people will pick up 10 fucking pineapples before they get it's a <laughs> COVID nightmare. And they're trying to work out if it's ripe or not ripe or whatever. And so I'll just go over to them and stand next to them. And then I'll just sort of, I'll look at them like that And then they'll look at me and first of all, they'll shit themselves because they'll go, fuck, it's fucking you. (laughs) And then I'll go, yeah, and they'll go, he's trying to find out if it's ripe. And they'll go, yeah. And they'll be in that weird moment, which you'd know, where the people are a bit like fucking, you know, the adrenaline's pumping. And then I'll go, it's easy. You just get the pineapple and you just, you shake it. And if you can hear the juice, (laughs) it's ripe. And they're just, they're looking at you going, you fucking you having a fucking are you serious or you know like I just I fucking love it you know like it's just I'm a normal I'm not I don't think of myself as being famous and so I think it's funny when people get fucking weird when they meet you. And so I just have a fucking laugh. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, you know, when you're in a restaurant, people are like fucking looking at you and they're doing that weird fucking thing where they've got their fucking phone taking fucking <laughs> photos and shit. You know, and like, I'll fucking, I'll do one of them. Or, you know, it's like they're looking at you waiting to put up a scorecard of out of 10 of what you thought. And they bite you just to, you know what I mean? I think it's funny
0: um two more questions if you could wake up tomorrow you don't have to do your ten thousand hours to perfect a skill you just wake up and you have a new skill any skill what would you love that skill to be oh that's a great question um
1: bagpipes oh yeah i'm learning it i'm learning it oh you are learning jimmy bought me a set of bagpipes for my birthday and um and uh, I haven't... Uh, it was one of those fucking COVID things where I was like, yeah, during COVID, yeah, I'm fucking going to fucking knock it out. I'm going to learn bagpipes. And it's like, it's hard, man. It's not easy, bagpipes. And... Um, I, I wish I wish that I could just do it because I, I can see that there's a hard path, not just for me, yeah. but everyone around me while I'm I learning that. I was about that. to say,
0: it's, it's <laughs> definitely one of those ones. It's like hearing someone play the bagpipes well, beautiful, yeah. but there's a lot of in between. Yeah. Not so good.
1: Um, I've got, uh, uh, Jimmy bought me a set that's electric so you can put headphones in. So actually ah. I've got no fucking excuse, but yeah. I, I know that once I learn that, then i'll progress to the proper ones that you've got to blow because then at least i'll have an idea of what i'm doing with the notes, so that won't sound as bad while while i'm learning that you know what i mean but yeah it's going to be tough for laws
0: uh all right final question mate this has been great thank you very much for doing this i appreciate it so uh the i have a time machine i can take you any to any point in the future, any point in the past, anywhere. I ask this in two, two parts because I just am interested. So the first part is just instinctively, if you were offered a trip in a time machine, would you go forward in time or backward in time? Forward. Okay, interesting. So why why not backwards? Before we get to where you go forwards, I just like I'm interested in why not backwards?
1: Because I think the I, I'm, a, I'm an optimist mm. and, and I think, you know, there's... It's like you know there's a reason the windscreen's bigger than the fucking rear rear uh window in a car, right like you just I think looking forward, I believe that that at any point in my life, there was more and better waiting for me ahead of me always and and I've got no reason to believe that that would be any different now.
0: Okay, good. So I like that. That's good reasoning. Good solid reasoning. So where are you going to go to? Um,
1: I'm going to go to um, uh, me being a nono, uh, maybe in my eighties with my kids and and my grandkids round a table. Me having cooked cacio e pepe or you know fresh focaccia and, and slicing meats and you know having a, a family meal with with all my family and their kids. I just that for me is like. A, 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 a dream and a, that I've had for such a long time and and it's something that's probably become more and more and more important to me and and I've got to say even today it's, it's more important to me that notion and um, that moment um, and and no doubt when it happens um, I'll
0: sit there crying like an old nono you know It's a good answer mate Thank you very much for doing this today it's been a pleasure. Likewise thanks mate.